You're listening to the Timony Leader Series podcast, brought to you by Timony Leadership Institute. Welcome to our Timony Leader Series. My name is Ronan O'Farrell, CEO of the Timony Leadership Institute, and you're very welcome to our Leader Series interview with Dr. Gotham Makunda on the topic of leading with character. Gotham is host of the NASDAQ podcast, World Reimagined, and is the author of two leadership books, uh, Indispensable, When Leaders Really Matter, and Picking Presidents, which is coming out later this spring. He's a regular contributor in Forbes, and is now a research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School School's Center for Public Leadership. He was professor at Harvard Business School for seven years, and on behalf of Harvard, spent two years of that out in China, setting up a leadership program there. And he has a PhD from MIT in political science, focusing on international relations and security studies. He's also a founder and board member of a medical device company developing cancer therapeutics. Now, I better stop there. I could keep going, <laughs> but maybe the most important piece I've left to last, and that is he is professor on our Timony Advanced Leadership Program and teaches on our masterclass series for alumni covering uh, different aspects of leadership. So delighted to welcome you, Gotham, and thanks for joining us on the Timony Leader Series. Great to have you here. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. I always enjoy my time with you guys. Fantastic. Well, before we talk, get into a conversation, just to say to those listening live, if you would like to ask Gotham a question, uh, you can use the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. Just type in your question there and hopefully we, we will get to him. Well, Gotham, many of our alumni will have benefited uh, this past year from the insightful discussion you led in January, uh, which was on the topic precisely of crisis leadership. And uh, we were on the, the threshold of what has been and, and continues to be hopefully a once in a lifetime crisis. Um, so what does a crisis like this tell us about the, the true nature of our character? Uh, thanks, Ron. So a lot. I, I mean, so my, my, my first book was on uh, outlier, what I call outlier leaders, sort of leaders who are very, very different from the norm, particularly U.S. presidents and who uh, often often are disastrous. Um, and so then, you know, we had President Trump and then I wrote, I did a, we started working on crisis leadership and I, I did a lot of work on biosecurity. Uh, one thing I don't even think, you know, Ronan is I was actually was a Carnegie Endowment biosecurity fellow for, for a long time. So I spent a lot of time working in biosecurity and epidemic oh, disease. Okay. And then this happened. So one of my friends was like, you're only allowed to write about happy things now, right? <laughs> like, 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 um, sort of, this is not my fault. Um, but, but I, I do start to wonder sometimes, uh, no, um, so crisis leadership is, Crisis leadership is fascinating for any number of reasons, right? I mean, partly just because of the drama of it. I think anyone who's interested in leadership is drawn to these moments when the fates of organizations are decided in, you know, relatively short spans of time. And it's particularly important in the case of leadership because in crisis is when power collapses to the center of the organization. So it's in a moment, leaders have their greatest levels of discretion mm. in a moments of crisis when they survive, even especially when the survival of the organization seems to be at stake. But in terms of the test of character, I think um, the easiest one, the easiest way to answer that question is to say that what we think of, I think often think one way of saying of your character is do you live by your values, mm -hmm. right? So, so what, both are your values ones that we find praiseworthy 
And then when, when the rubber hits the, you know, do you live by them? And so, but your values are what guide you when choices are hard, hmm. right? So, so when the choices are easy, you don't need values to get right. Like the, 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 the people always say, well, you know, I, I did the wrong thing in this situation because it was a really tough shit situation. I'm like, yes, but of course you did the right thing when it was easy. Everybody does the right thing when it's easy. That's not the question. Mm-hmm. The question is how do you, what is your question of, of the, is what do you do when things are hard? And crisis of course are the moments when things are hardest. And beyond that, I would say, is there also the moments when you are most tempted to choose through expediency, right? So you, you can say like, this is a crisis. We just need to survive. You know, we don't know what's going on. We're in the moments of ambiguity. And this is the moment, this is the, the e- when it's easiest to make the excuses that you can make to yourself about why you did the wrong thing. And so what we see, I, now I would argue that leading with character, leading with your values is actually the way to success in a crisis over the longer term. But it's also when the temptations are highest. It's when we find out who you really are. Yes, yes. And uh, I suppose with, with that, I mean, it, the the tough decisions that have to be made uh, in a crisis, well, presumably that's the ability to make those those tough choices and, and perhaps wise ones is is something that you've you've developed over a period of time. It's not that you suddenly get an inspiration in the moment. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's all, you know, anyone can get lucky, right? I would say never, never underestimate the power of luck or someone just happened, happening to sort of get, get things right. But yes, you, you shouldn't rely on it, right? Like, like relying on luck is not a strategy to put it mildly. Yeah. Um, crisis leadership is, I would say, is a product of a few, of a few things, right? One is it's the, it is, it is most successfully executed when you have someone who understands the organization, in which they're part, right? So you have that, and that usually these things come with time. You have a deep knowledge of situation and context that allows you to interpret a deeply ambiguous situation accurately. So you can think about crisis. What are the hallmarks of crisis? Step back. Like, what do we mean when we say crisis? I would say, I think we, we, what we mean is we, know, we have a situation where the stakes are high, where information is highly ambiguous. So you don't really know, you don't necessarily really know what's going on. And when you're operating under time pressure, right? So think decisions have to be made quickly. So I would say a crisis is the, is the combination of those three factors. And so one of the things that we, we off, I often say about the, what you see about leaders is that the, what it's easiest to see from outside and hardest to see from inside is that the world is underdetermined for them, right? They, they get huge amounts of information, especially a modern leader with modern information gathering technologies, right? Mm-hmm. You get huge amounts of information. If you are the CEO of a bank, you can, you know, the, you could, the, no human being could read in a year the number of data, the amount of data that is available to you on a daily basis, mm-hmm. right? And so the situation, and so the issue there is, it's very, very easy to pick and choose from that information in order to get to conclusions that affirm your priors, right? It's very easy to believe what you want to believe, and that is not talking about someone doing that deliberately. I'm not saying you know the people who do that. You know, when someone does that deliberately, we say they're dishonest. Right? And that is, in fact, you know, sort of the ultimate lo- an ultimate level of intellectual dishonesty is picking and choosing the information to support, support what you want to know. But what I'm saying, but I would say beyond it is the human brain is just wired to do that, right? Human human brains are confirmation seeking machines. We look at the world, and we try and get confirmation for our prior beliefs. We, in a, in a very profound way, we are we are wired not to be right, but to feel right which is very different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so in a crisis where information is coming into you, right? So the, there are two such things. One is 
your priors, your sort of your your beliefs about say how the business should operate are in some way probably wrong. Because if they aren't, why would you be in a crisis, right? Like like something has gone wrong. <laughs> um, and sometimes that's a purely external event, right? Like um, absolutely something might happen that that you that was just outside of your control. But most of the time something went wrong, right? Something went and and that means that this is, um, I see a question from Paul, uh, I can't, I'm not sure I can pronounce his last name, but Paul Paul, Paul Joya, um, where he said, is it important to re reconsider our beliefs? I'd say it, no, I'd say it depends on the type of belief, right? If your belief is that in 2008, um, so one of the leaders I studied who I thought was most impressive in a crisis was, was Bob Steele, who was the CEO of Wachovia during the financial crisis, right? When basically they, they were a very well-operated bank that had bought a mortgage making subsidiary just bef before he became CEO. He was not responsible for this mistake. And that mortgage making subsidiary then in the financial crisis blew up and threatened to take the entire bank down with it. And so he was kind of, he was brought in and then, you know, he's there for literally just, just, you know, a few months and bam, this happens. So if your prior going into the financial, going into this was, you know, the US mortgage market will never collapse. This is the time to reevaluate that, right? The people who said, oh, well, we just have to ride it out right? This is not a solvency. I say that there were people who thought this was a liquidity problem and people who thought this was a solvency problem. The people who thought this was a solvency problem were right. The issue was not that the market was in free fall because no one had money. The issue was that the, those, that these were, these were bad mortgages, right? That had been written by people who were, who, who were, you know, either reckless or criminal or both. Um, so that's the time when you want to reevaluate your priors really profoundly, right? You want to say like, what were the things that I believed about the world that turned out not to be true? But the difference between right your sort of beliefs those sort of operational beliefs about the world and your values is quite profound mm -hmm. right so the person who reevaluates their beliefs about the world in terms of how you know what i would say is, is the the circumstances that lead to success that's really important but your values are in a very real sense the things that you believe in the absence of evidence mm -hmm. right ronan i mean ronan you and I, you and i have talked offline about about yeah. about religion on a few occasions uh, okay it says that you know faith is belief in the absence of evidence mm -hmm. if you have evidence you do not need faith that's that's the whole point <laughs> of it yeah and so your values are things that you should believe even when Right. Even in the absence of right, like, like, if, if you give it up because, gee, well, it seems like this isn't working to, for me today. Those mm -hmm. aren't your values. values. Mm -hmm. Um. So B Bob, in his case, was like, look, whatever happens, I have a responsibility to my shareholders and to my employees to find the best you know, outcome for them. And I would like to keep the bank independent. But if that means I have to sell it, then I have to sell it. If that means that I need to take personal risks. And he was sued for literally billions of dollars by Citigroup personally at one point then I will take on that risk as long as I can get to a better outcome for my people. And as he said to me very proudly, you know, at the, when he, when he ended up selling the bank to Wells Fargo and stepping down, as he said to me, like at the end, when, so Wachovia is headquartered in Charlotte, North Carolina. It says, so two years after the financial crisis, Wells Fargo employed more people in Charlotte than Wachovia had. So he had so so he had rescued right. I mean, that's yeah. a whole town, a whole city yeah. that yeah. that whose economy was crucially dependent Pendant, on yeah. sort of doing that, and he was able to do that with because and he had a particular way of thinking his way through managing a crisis. We can talk about, but I would say he was able to do that because he, Bob combined, you know, flexibility in tactics with certainty on values, mm -hmm. right? Where he was like, "This is what I stick to," 
and that that duality was really really important and we can talk about lots of other leaders who i think this sure was yeah well. and those those values that let's say underpin uh the, the character that that one develops. So where 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 can people search for those? Find those? Oh my goodness! Um, I mean, so I think many people come from they come from many different mm. routes. Um, so I will say, I mean, you know, they're, they're standard answers, and they're, despite the fact that they're standard, doesn't make them wrong, right? People draw them from religion. Mm. They draw from from, from families. I, I will pick one that I think is atypical. I think we vastly underestimate the character building effects of reading hmm. right of of, re of reading reading good books um and and like i, I genuinely like I, I genuinely believe that that the the reading we do fiction in particular as when you, especially when you're younger shapes who you are in profound ways um like every every person who wants to be who every every ambitious person right who should read crime and punishment it should just be a requirement if you are an ambitious human being, you should read Crime and Punishment, right? Yeah. Because Crime and Punishment sort of beautifully lays out, not, and it's not a didactic novel, right? But what, you cannot read Crime and Punishment as a thoughtful person and not come out with it realizing that what Dostoevsky is actually doing is laying out, this is how talented, ambitious people go wrong, mm -hmm. right? This is the sort of mistakes they make. Um, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be fiction, although I think fiction, I think fiction can be extraordinarily powerful. Um, C.S. Lewis's The Inner Ring. I think you and I have discussed the, the Inner Ring run. Mm -hmm. Like, like if you only if you don't have the time to read Crime and Punishment, go read The Inner Ring. Right, like this yeah. essay, yeah. and it, and it will really help you think about what it is that is how, not you know not just knowing right from wrong. So, philosophers spend a lot of time sort of working out. So I used to teach ethics. Right when I taught ethics, the the whole discussion of what we were doing was all about how do you know what the right thing to do here. Mm -hmm. And there are absolutely circumstances where that's in question, right? So I was teaching ethics of international relations. Mm -hmm. Is it the right thing to do to go to war or not, or to you know, engage in this tactic or not? Like those are hard intellectual questions, right? Yeah. And, and the, the, the answers are not clear. But for unless you are, you know, in foreign policy or in a handful of other arenas in the world, most of the time, the question of what is the right thing to do is not in my, well, from what I have seen, the hard one to answer. Yeah, the hard one is doing it, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, West Point, and, and maybe doing it against in 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 the face of everyone doing the opposite because it's not the yes, you know, it's not the trendy thing to do. Absolutely right. It's it's um, um, West Point tells cadets that they need to have the strength to choose the hard right over the easy wrong. Mm. I say mm. that you know, if all you know about moral philosophy is that the hard right thing to do is the hard one. You don't know everything, but you're like ninety percent of the way there, right? Like, I mean, you 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 got you got the basic, and um, and that question of how do, of doing it is is the difficult one. And so, yes. in the podcast oh, that the, that I do, like our, the not the most recent episode, but the one before that was the one that I'm sort of proudest of because what we had were two people, uh, Andrew Nui, the CEO of Pepsi, who took over this you know gigantic multi hundred thousand you know two hundred some thousand person company that made sugary sweets, you know, sugary drinks and salty snack foods, right? That was what they did. Um, I, you know, at one point they also owned Pizza Hut and Taco and Taco Bell and Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I, you know, when I teach the case about Pepsi, I used to joke that back in the eighties, Pepsi strategy was, you know, if we, if, if you eat this and it kills you, we make it right. <laughs> like, um, and so they weren't that anymore, but she takes over and, you know, Pepsi and this is this. And then, 
So she says, we are going to be a different company, right? We're going to do performance with purpose. We're, we're going to make money for our shareholders. We're going to keep, you know, we're going to keep employing our employees, but we're going to find a way to do that by delivering healthy foods and healthy drinks. Mm -hmm. And that was an incredibly hard thing to do, right? When she did it, her, her competitors went double down in the opposite direction. Um, right when when Pepsi, so Mexico, you know, a few years ago passed the United States for most obese large country in the world. You know, we're number two, um, and, um, and and so in Mexico, they Pepsi ran ads, sort of saying that look, we'll, you know, for diet drinks, saying these these will you know these are healthier, and Coke responded by running ads saying Coke has the real sugar that gives you the energy to get you through the day. <laughs> right. <Nice>. So, <laughs> so doing what she did was, you know, it was yes. insightful in the sense that it clearly ended up being a successful business strategy for Pepsi. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know time, if it would it was, be. Right, but you didn't, that's right. Like we, we, we always know, we always tell these stories when we know the outcome. Yeah. But I'm like, but when you don't know, um, you know, obviously Pepsi is not, you know, Pepsi is not a tobacco company. I'm not saying there are any, I'm not, I'm not drawing a parallel. Yeah. But imagine that you were the CEO of Philip Morris in 1970, right? And somebody said to you, well, you know, you got to get out of cigarettes because we they're in the same. And you would have known they were dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. Like, as a business person, that would not that you know like, like I would if you were the CEO of Philip Morris and decided you were going to do that. My bet is the most likely outcome is the board fires you, right? Because that is a that's that that it is not clear what the what yeah. what the what the business alternative is. Mm -hmm. And most boards are really interested in making money. So yes. what she did was very brave. Um, so the other person who was on that podcast is uh, was a guy named Everett Spain, who is a colonel in the United States Army, who's the head of the Leadership Development Department at West Point, and he did his PhD with me at Harvard. Um, and Everett is, you know, as I said, I'm not, you know, like he's one of my best friends, but I have no, you know, like I embarrass him horribly in the podcast by saying, you know, he's literally my hero. He is the person I most admire of any person I've ever met in my life. Um, and yeah, I mean, he's tremendously accomplished. Like we, we, we I, what I'll say is we say a few things about what he's done in his career in the mm -hmm. podcast, but like, that is a vast understatement right. of like the scale of what he's actually done in his professional life. Right. Um, but, um, but what, I mean, what we, what, the other thing he did is, is he was also at the Boston marathon bombings uh, when the bombs went off and he saved several people's lives um, by applying a tourniquet and running, you know, running into the smoke and flames and you know, and to, and and at risk to his own life, saving several others. Showing real courage. Yeah, it, it was. Um, the the podcast was the first time. Ever is among other things the humblest human being I've ever met. Um, mm -hmm. and and uh, and the podcast is basically the first time he's ever spoken about this in public because I mean because I asked him to. I thought it, I, I thought it was, I think it's important that for him to tell that to story. air that. Yeah. So you just mentioned uh, there humility. I mean, and courage came up before that as well. So these are key traits, really, of of the kind of character that you, you, you like to have as a leader. No? That's what I say is whatever it says is, is, and I think, you know, if I wanted to know how to develop leaders of character, I would always ask Everett, right? Both because it, it's what it's his job and it's because of what he lives. And I don't know that he used this word, but I'd say it's Everett, like almost anyone in the military is a, is a virtue ethicist, mm -hmm. right? And virtue ethics is that what you, you get, you, you learn to do the right thing by doing it repeatedly. Essentially, that you know, moral muscles are like physical muscles. The way you strengthen them is by stressing them over and over and over again. And so, what he says is he he watches people, right? Like when he trains cadets, what he says is is is, is if you do the right thing in the small things, you know, over and over and over again, it will build to the ability to do the right things in the big ones. Um, 
So one example is um, the bridge that connects Harvard Business School and the rest of Harvard is called the Soldier's Bridge. And it's built in memorial to Harvard men who died in you know, fighting in America's wars. And so every single time Everett and I crossed that bridge, which has to be dozens of times, I would watch as he picked trash up off the bridge with his hands, right? Because the Soldier's Bridge should not have trash on it. And because, and you know, that is doing the right thing in the small things that it adds up to doing the right ones and you know eventually in the big ones and that i think also is is key to that that's that that re repeating day in day, day in day out that the habit forms and and becomes less of a challenge to to do and then in a, in, in a crisis manifests itself with i presume in the boston marathon he didn't think too much about he just responded in the way in which his character suggested him. So I'd say so. I mean, so what my, I would absolutely. I mean, what I would say beyond that is is when I heard, you know, he he we we spoke briefly that day, and then you know, eventually I found the full details of the story. Hmm. Um, but what I say is is that whatever it did in the Boston Marathon did not affect my opinion of him in even the tiniest amount, because anyone who knew Everett knew that that's exactly what he would have done in that circumstance, right? It's not it's not in doubt. It's not in question. That's what you do. Hmm. But. Um, but it is important because also like if you were to construct a theory as to why that repetition matters right like so that's what i am i'm a theorist at the end of the day i i, I do this um what i would say is what being a leader right being in a position of authority means that you have power right it means that someone has given you power mm -hmm. and so what we know about power is that is that power is incredibly it changes having power is one of the most profound experiences a human being can undergo it changes who you are right it literally changes who you are in a very basic way and so research by adam galinsky at columbia university suggests you know quite distressingly that for most people power makes them worse people it makes them more aggressive more deceitful more machiavellian more manipulative more narcissistic like it just makes them worse people and so that's, you know, that's worrying. That's, that, that's, sort of, that's sort of distressing. But, you know, research by, by a, a bunch of social scientists has revealed that actually uh, across, across people, there's this relatively small fraction of people for whom having power makes them better people. They become more altruistic, more community oriented, more honest, right? So that's interesting. So, you know, what, what's going on here? And so what it seems to happen is that having, you often hear people say, you know, you'll often hear people in the news say, well, so-and-so will be moderated by power, right? Like the experience of having power will make them sort of move to the center. That's exactly wrong. Power is not a moderating force. Power is a liberating force, right? Once, once you have power, you don't have to pretend to be someone you're not in order for people to give you power. You've got it. Mm -hmm. And so you get to use it to do what you want. And so what we find out is that for a lot of people, Power, you know, power enables them to do the things that they wanted to do, and they're not good. But for some people, power allows them to act on their deepest identity. And those people seem to be people whose people whose identity centers themselves as moral actors. Right? They are people who think of every choice in their life as a moral one and who allow and who make that as the central for guiding framework of what they do. So if, why these small things lead up to big ones is what we know is that people have identities and we say, you, we want you to be authentic. That's true. Like authenticity is important in a lot of contexts, but identities are malleable, right? So, so who you think of, who you are, who you think of yourself as being can change over time. In fact, it does change over time. That's, that's what growth is, right? Mm -hmm. We want people, we say people, you should be authentic. Like, but you should also grow. Well, grow means they change. And 
the way it changes over one of the we know that what changes time is your identity is is our chain of cause and effect for people is kind of reversed what we think is that people come up with reasons and then they do things that actually doesn't look like what it is what really happens is people do things and then they come up with reasons to explain why they did them yeah um and so if you do the right thing you will construct reasons as to why you did the right thing and if you do the right thing often enough, the reason will become, it's because I am the sort of person who does the right thing. The center of my identity is mm. I am the person who does it when the, you know, who, do, who does the right thing. And so you can become, in fact, I would say it's the only way to become one of these people who makes moral choices at the center of their identity and who then becomes in, you know, in moments of power and in moments of stress, the person who, 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 in, in, who acts in that way instead of like most of us who goes in the opposite direction. Opposite direction, yeah. And you mentioned there, I mean, just building on that, like how you develop that over time. It's not just, I suppose, in starting out on that journey, very often the example of others, starting with your family and and uh, friends and so forth. But even what you were saying, walking across the bridge, seeing other people, other people in leadership role, uh, living out their character in this way, living virtues, essentially good habits, that really does have an impact. It's 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 uh, it was a Benjamin Franklin said, you know, good example is the best sermon. Uh, that sort of thing that oh, yeah. we, we, no, it I goes mean, through our eyes, you know, more than yeah. our ears. So mentorship, mentorship and sort of that sort of development, I think, is so crucial. Um, and, you know, like heroes are important. It's not just about heroism, but having these people. So I act the way I do with students because my mentor, Stanley Hoffman, acted that way with me. Right. And so that's the way you should behave. Right. Like, so Stanley, you know, Stanley always had time for me. So I make, t so, you know, so I always have time for my students, even when, you know, I'm, I've, there are things in my life that I, uh, but that was how he did. So that's what you, you know, he, oh, you know, it says he never sat down with me and said to me, this is what I expect of you. You know, it would have been something if he had, but he didn't need to. He lived it. Uh, and that I think is, is, is absolutely true that, that you, we develop. So I've I said this in at least two of the podcasts, right? Being human is a team sport. Mm. We, we, we're never human alone. We're not fully human alone. In fact, John McCain, uh, when he was a prisoner of war in North Vietnam and he was tortured for, he was tortured by the North Vietnamese for years. McCain said that the worst part of that experience was not the torture. The worst part was when they had him in solitary confinement, right? He would rather have been in the, he would, he would rather have faced that than, than, than solitary. And I mean, and this is, you know, the most profound statement you can imagine about how deep the human need is for being with people. Yeah. And that need, and that, you know, everything from character, you know, character is not shaped in, in isolation, except as I said, in reading. And when you're reading, you're in fact, I would say not in isolation, but you are is in the deepest possible engagement with a person separated from you in time and place, but whose spirit is still with you in the book that they created. Mm -hmm. um, but it is shaped in groups. And with this sense of, okay, this is what this person did. And so I can live up to it. Yeah, that's very interesting. And uh, just the, you'll have often heard it, I'm sure yourself from, from um, executives, but this idea that, you know, it's lonely at the top and mm -hmm. um, being for, at a leader, leader is lonely, lonely place to be. And, and very often when it comes to making key decisions, it can be quite difficult because they don't necessarily have, have the, uh, all of the knowledge and and experience to know what's best to do in the moment. So yeah, I, go ahead. no, I was just thinking like what, what um, I mean, it strikes me certainly that that being in the company of other leaders is is a great way of 
learning from them and from uh, sort of mutual encouragement and so forth in a positive way, not not necessarily in, in a group think, but <laughs> getting challenged and, and learning from the example of others and how they're. No, doing. I think so. I mean, so I, I I remember when I first started studying CEOs and sort of work, and working with them, I was always surprised by how much they kind of hung out with each other. Um, and it's easy to make fun of, right? Like, and you know, and, and I, I am, I am a fan of not. Of, I'm like a fan of making fun of, like the 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 pretensions of too many CEOs and the, the egos is is something that you know needs to be punctured, both for, both for their good and for ours. Um, I do remember having dinner once with the CEO, CEO of a very large American corporation, who said to me, you know, when I was the CEO, just retired, and he said, when I was the CEO, I got constant criticism. For the like cushy lives and the expense accounts and the high salaries and the like the private jets and you know people would attack us all the time and i would just think if they only knew if they only knew what my life is really like they would be so much more angry and i went okay um okay i like you um this is awesome um, yeah um, but um, but but you know so but beyond that particular point right like i i, I think in a real sense they talk uh, one of the reasons they talk with one another beyond you know that sort of stuff which is you know a driver is if you're not in that situation it's kind of hard to to understand it um mm -hmm. so cynthia carroll who, who i've taught her case at timony at least once mm -hmm. um who, who is you know the, the sort of Another one of those people who I admire so much, it's kind of like it kind of embarrasses them, but who's just this remarkable person who took over Anglo-American, you know, 162,000 person mining company. And a few months into her tenure learned that they, you know, they had 45 people a year dying in mining accidents. And that basically said to her board, I, I cannot support this. Like, I am going to fix this. I'm not going to run a company that kills 45 people a year and, you know, like support me or fire me like those are your options right because this is going to happen and she's just amazing very courageous and, and, and yeah i mean that that to me is the center of it like like the skill with which she executed that change operation is astonishing and when you you know when you go through the cultural change effort it's probably the most impressive corporate cultural change effort i've ever studied but the basic moment of decision right the courage of someone who you know has you know has never been a CEO before, and you know probably won't be again, and has this one chance to be at the summit of this you know organization that says you know what, we're gonna do it. That is just and and it, and it and it wasn't a one moment thing. So over the course of her career, she once told me that on a fairly routine basis, she had to make choices that would affect you know have have material impact on the GDP of countries. Right, like like you know, and the the scale of that kind of boggles the mind, right? Like 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 that you know most most countries heads of heads of government don't make that kind of decision all that often right and yet that was a part of her job mm -hmm. and so i think i think it was probably hard for anyone who wasn't in her shoes to understand what that was like and i do have i mean i do have sympathy for that that, that must be a hard decision yeah well you, you've talked about um about reading the importance of reading developing your own understanding learning from others continuous mm -hmm. learning uh, what about you know, it's fast paced, particularly in a crisis, you don't have much time sometimes to 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 study and think, work things out. But how important is that reflection time to stop and think and assimilate what's what's going on? And so I suppose in a culture where we're yeah, yeah. we're tweeting, yeah. <laughs> CEOs are tweeting and uh, we're all, you know, tweeting. How do you get that balance right? Yeah, so profoundly so. And um, so one is Right. So uh, Henry Kissinger, not anybody's idea of a moral leader, but this is a, you know, like like a good 
you know, a good point. He said is that he said that you, you build your intellectual capital outside of government service and you spend it when you're in it, right? Like so when you're in this sort of situation, it's 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 kind of hard, you know, you have to rely on what you built up beforehand. And um right, so I to go back to the athletics analogy, right? There is such a thing as overtraining. You train, you know, you I do not think that people develop those moral muscles that we're talking about when they're in leadership positions because they are constantly stressed, right? There's no there's no moment to reconsolidate and build your thing, right? They deplete that. In fact, one of the reasons I always say that I think that CEOs should not like, you know, should not be in CEO positions for forever for these extended periods of time is because I think people change, right? Like, like people's abilities and energies are depleted by that. And there's just a limit beyond which you probably can't go. I mean, if you just look at photos of presidents of the United States when they're elected and when they step down, you're like, that's not eight years, right? Like that's just not eight years of aging. That, that's a lot more than that. Um, and this is, this is true. I'll, I'll just note, it's sort of interesting finding across fields. What we see is that winning has benefits beyond just winning. So for example, Nobel prize winners outlive people scientists who've been nominated for the nobel prize by by years right so this is you know and so like these are all tenured professors with the best healthcare in the world mm -hmm. yet somehow the the positive status effects of winning the nobel prize are literally worth years of lifespan and this is true everywhere it's true with civil servants it's true with ceo it's true with corporate executives doesn't matter where you are it's just true there's one exception and that one exception is the heads of government of democratically elected of democratic countries. The people who win those elections don't live as long as the people they lose, as they lose as the people they beat. Wow. And the reason for that just seems to be that the stress of being in that job is not metaphorically killing, it is literally killing. It literally decreases their life expectancy, right? Mm. And so there's this sense of of, you know, of when to get back to your question. So sorry, so, so, sorry Ronan, I was a little I got a little discursive there, but um is the person you were when you went into the office yeah. is likely to, you know, you're not likely to be the same person when you come out of it. And odds are probably not great that you're better. Like some people develop in office. Um, Abraham Lincoln was an incredibly deep moral thinker when he went into the presidency and seems to have developed further over that span of time. But you know what? You're not Abraham. You know, you're not Abraham Lincoln. And if you think you are, you're really not Abraham Lincoln, right? Like that's just, that's just not the category you want to work from. And so, there's this sense of both developing before you come to those these senior most positions. And the second one I just say is I think creating this culture, one of the things you see when you study high performance, you know, sort of leaders is they make time to think, mm -hmm. right? They make a very deliberate approach of scheduling time to give themselves, th you know, space. And the one thing I would very much like, one thing I'd very much like to change is this expectation that leaders should respond to everything instantaneously, mm -hmm. right? So, so I will never, I will be incredibly happy the day when somebody asked the White House press secretary, what does the president think about X? And the press secretary's response is, you know, the president doesn't know yet, right? Like the president is thinking about it. He'll get back to you tomorrow, right? Or she'll get back to you tomorrow. That would be awesome. And I hope that we, like, I hope that we start to develop that, you know, that expectation for people that the biggest, the biggest thing we can ask these people to do is, is take the time to get it right. And if, if they don't get it right, as we, you know, we don't often don't get things right, what does a leader of character do? Admit it, right? So, I mean, like, it, it, it astonishes me the extent to which leaders are unwilling to say, I got it wrong, right? Like, like, I mean, to the extent that we have data on this, there's nothing suggesting that, that people punish leaders who are honest about saying, you know, tried my hardest, made a mistake, 
you know, let's, but these things happen. So what I'd say is, I think we should be more tolerant for what I would call honest mistakes. People who are trying the best that they could and got it wrong <laughs> and way less tolerant for on, for mistakes of deception. Mm-hmm. Right. So early in his, you know, like early during the, during the, the COVID-19 crisis pandemic in the United States, Anthony Fauci said masks are probably, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially said that masks probably aren't that important. Yeah, he was wrong. Like, you know, he was wrong. He said it. He's like, you know, guess what? The science turned out I was wrong. That wasn't right. That was a mistake, right? That does not change my evaluation, which was, which was true, which I had long before COVID-19, that Anthony Fauci might well be, you know, the greatest, you know, on the very, very short list of the greatest living Americans. But people who said, you know, COVID-19 is not dangerous when all the evidence was there, right? They weren't saying that because they were evaluating the data differently. They were saying that because it was convenient to say that. We should have no tolerance for that kind of, for that kind of, that is a very different type of circumstance. We tend to treat them both though the same, well, to we, <laughs> particularly yeah. in, in, in media and social media, you know, if you make a mistake, you step out of line, particularly in a leadership role, you can get hammered. And, and that, yeah. that understanding that sort of forgiveness or understanding of a, a genuine mistake and we're learning from this doesn't get much um, much uh, space, really. Um, no. Uh, well, what's interesting, right? So what I would say is you get hammered on, on Twitter and social on social media hmm. and then I mean, and then you are right. Like so. So I would say that one of the reasons one of the reasons Biden won the American presidential election it's because he, his team was the one that did not care what anyone on Twitter said about anything, right? They, they, and they were very open about this. They were like, we don't care. It does not matter. And we do not care. And so we are going to ignore it. And, you know, like people who live on Twitter and God knows I spend way too much time on Twitter. Um, like, like, like this was like a horrible mistake because the, these social media tools like shape your experience of the world and you, these constant reactions and things, you know, and they're people, you know, they're people who troll you and whatever. And I was like, you know what? for most people who are not on Twitter and for most organized, you know, like the very fact that cycle times on Twitter are short means also that memories are short, right? It's like, we don't care is probably the right answer. So I do think one thing that we sort of would ask people to develop is a thicker skin for this kind of thing, right? Just say like, okay, people on Twitter are harassing you. Okay. Like they're on Twitter. They have 13 followers and you will never hear from them from them ever again. Right. Um, th- that's okay. And get and the next day you go on, you know, like, Move forward. Um, you should care what your employees think. You should care what your colleagues think. You should care what your family thinks. You know what? You know Batman's Batman fan thirteen hundred and four cares about. Probably not that important. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah. yeah. Well, I know we we probably need to wrap it up, but it. Um, we last week we were talking about uh, the designing the future of work in one of our master classes, and this whole theme of you know human centered. Uh, human-centric organizations that there's more more um, sort of openness and, and perhaps through the experience of of all that's happened over the pandemic the remote working the the flexibility that's been introduced do you do you hold out hope for a better uh, working environment better balance in, in the way in which I, I mean I do um, and the person I would sort of I would recommend everyone here is uh, Sadal, my colleague and dear friend Sadal Neely who was also a guest on my podcast on episode four with uh, Vivek Morthy, the U.S. Uh, former and soon to be, I hope, uh, future U.S. Surgeon General, uh, talking about remote work. And so Sadal has a wonderful book called The Remote Work Revolution, uh, and Vivek has a wonderful book called Together about sort of about the loneliness epidemic that's in most Western countries and what we can do about it. 
And um, and what it says, I, I COVID-19 was a humanitarian catastrophe of the like that we have not seen in a very long time. Right? It is impossible to overstate mm -hmm. the scale of the suffering, both the people who died and the people who lost, you know, who the people who knew them and who feel that loss, mm -hmm. and also just the the isolation and the I mean, it's been it's been tough on almost everyone. Uh, and, you know, some of us are very much luckier than others. I, I certainly say, I, you know, I've been incredibly lucky in how this has treated me and it's been tough on me. So I can only imagine what it's been like for, for someone who hasn't been so fortunate. Yeah. Um, but I do think that it has pushed us to change and adapt in ways that we can hope will eventually be really quite productive. Right. I mean, I think we've all learned that we can do a lot more remotely than we thought we could, you know, we may not have to love it, but um, so one thing, there was a, an article in Atlantic that made a wonderful point, right? That one thing that, that, that video conferencing used to be relatively rare, partly because of the network effect. That was, if you wanted to do it, you didn't really have any high level of confidence that everyone else you wanted to do it with, you know, you wanted to video conference with was able to, right? Or if they were able to, it would take a lot of effort on their parts. Yeah. And so it just wouldn't happen. Happen, yeah. Now, you know that absolutely everyone you're likely to want to speak to has something, the ability to get on Zoom, right? Like, like. This is the, and so the barrier to engaging in that type of thing is much lower. Sure. And so what I do think what we'll, we've started to see, and we'll see, well, this is what Sadal writes about brilliantly, is the extent to which workspaces have adapted and changed, you know, and we're only beginning with that process. And I, for one, I mean, I, I think it would be great if we, like, I miss colleagues, right? Like, I miss going into the office and seeing people and sticking my head in their door and saying, like, what do you think about X and Y? But, you know, I don't miss doing it every day. Right. I don't feel like 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 I think that I strongly suspect that we that for many of us, we will reach a medium where that that becomes a lot less necessary just because we've all learned that you don't have to. And don't that strikes me as being a win in the long run. Yeah, very good. Very good. Well, look, we'll 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 leave it there. Where can people find out a little bit more about, well, your podcast and, uh, yeah, yeah, and also yeah. your book? Thanks. So, so, so my first book is called Indispensable When Leaders Really Matter uh, on Amazon. The podcast, I would ask all of you, if you watch this and you enjoyed it, please subscribe. It would mean a lot to me. Uh, it's called World Reimagined. You can find it anywhere podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts. Uh, if you care to leave us five stars and such, I'd appreciate that too. But, um, yeah. but please do. Um, we are just about two thirds of the way through our first season. Um, we've had Tom Friedman, the New York Times uh, columnist. We've had U.S. Surgeon General, Andrew Nui, Everett Spain, um, you will find a variety of other people coming forward who I think will be equally, you know, quite a few names of rec you recognize and quite a few that you don't, but you'll want to hear from. So please but, do. But they're all chance. fascinating uh, insights. You, you, you give them a good, good interview and a good discussion. So, so well done Thank on you. that and certainly uh, recommend it. Well, before we, we close, I'd like to let you know uh, next Monday on the 8th of March, we'll be having a special webinar. Um, it's uh, with the being the International Women's Day. Uh, we're going to have, have it on at 12 o'clock on Monday and it's hosted by Laura Lynch of Laura Lynch Associates. She'll be joined by fellow alumni Nicola McNicholas from NUI Galway and Michelle Vance of Lily O'Brien Chocolates and Sharon Rolston of Music Network, all alumni of previous uh, Timony programs. So do come, do subscribe to it. You'll, you'll probably get uh, details on in your email or uh, WhatsApp if you're on our groups or on LinkedIn as well. Over the following weeks, we'll have other interesting webinars on leadership topics as well. And you can uh, pick up on those on our podcast channel or on YouTube as well. And then on the 24th of um, this month as well, we'll have Rory MacDonald, Professor Rory MacDonald from Harvard, joining us for a 
virtual masterclass on innovating in challenging times. Uh, so that uh, really looking forward to that. You'll be able to find details, more details about that on our website. Great. Well, um, we'll leave it there. And thank you all very much for, for joining us. Thank you, Gotham, for a very interesting uh, discussion and a lot of depth to it. I'm sure we could have gone on for longer, but we'll, uh, we'll pick it up again. And we look forward to hopefully seeing you back in the in the autumn for our uh, leadership program and maybe a masterclass if uh, if you have the time. So looking forward I to look that. Forward Thank to you that. very much. Take care. This podcast was brought to you by Timony Leadership Institute. Better people, better organizations, better society.